Do not confuse this with treatment or mental health advice or direction. Nothing on this podcast is made to supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your mental health caretakers. Although David Koslowski is a licensed marriage and family therapist, he is not functioning as a certified mental health professional in this environment. And same applies to any professional who may appear on the Light, the Fight podcast. Welcome to the OG Therapy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of OG Therapy. And you guys, I've got a real OG. And not just a real OG, but a close friend of mine, Mr. Lemma Heron. Glad to be here. I'm in need of some OG therapy. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm yeah. in need of some OG therapy too. We so I'll tell you are, what, right? I'll take you to Pokey. You okay. take me to sushi. We'll therapize <laughs> each other. I like it. Right? Yeah. Wonder Twin Powers activate. There you go. Form <laughs> of uh, guys that have their stuff together someday, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> yes. At now, some point. Yeah, at some point. Well, Alema, thanks for coming on the yeah. podcast with me. It's been a long time, man, since we sat down to, yeah. and done this. So for some of my uh, longtime listeners, like the fight, we have a lot of yeah. new listeners, but some of my longtime listeners remember back in the day. Um, and oh, of course, I've been talking about this on OG Therapy recently because most of my guests recently were also guests on my ESPN yeah. 700 show that was called Quit Trippin'. But then Alema and I, we had this crazy idea back in the KSL radio days I had a podcast of KSL Radio called Just Cause. And one day I said, you know what, Lemon, why don't you come on the podcast? Let's just talk about men's mental health. Yeah. It got so much traction and so many people liked it. They're like, do more of that men's stuff. So you kept on coming back every week with me. And we're like, I think we got something here. And this was before men's <laughs> yeah. health became like a cool thing on Instagram. This was back in 2017, mm -hmm. I think it was. And not that people weren't talking about men's health, but... Um, for those people that don't know Lemma, you're about to get to know him. He has a very interesting story, background, and the work that he does that I, I mean, not that the work that you do in sports broadcasting isn't great and yeah. amazing, but with all due respect, I don't think that changes people's life that entertains people in yeah. their life, which is entertainment is very important for our lives as well. But the work that you do in drug and, uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation and in therapy and counseling, that's what I really want to focus more on here. And maybe we'll slide in a little jazz talk, you know, throughout yeah. the conversation. But going back to that story with the KSL, um, when we we're talking about men's mental health, what did you think about that? Did you think we were on to something back yeah, then? Yeah, no, I loved it because there, there really wasn't a vehicle for that. And uh, I think it's important for guys to feel like it's safe, it's okay to be able to talk uh, about the fact that, man, I'm really freaking struggling. and so. Um, there, there's a, there's an audience for that and, and I'm part of the audience. And so I love the opportunity to just be able to, to talk about it, uh, in a, you know, just kind of a, a loose format. Yeah. Well, that's what we're gonna do today. And um, before we get started and get, you know, deep into that, I want to talk to you about what you've been doing, you know, recently. When I say recently, to me, it's recently because in the past couple of years, you've been really busy. And I've just been waiting for you to call me back. I'm <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I'm busy every now and then, too. But uh, in the last couple of years, we haven't had a chance to sit down and talk story. Yeah. Right. As yeah. much as, as we used to. So um, let everybody know what you got going on uh, and with the sports as well. Yeah. But let everybody know what Alema Harrington's got going on in his life right now. Well, I just came through kind of the crazy part of my schedule because football and basketball overlap the NBA and I do high school football do high school football here in our state of Utah. And um, so, like last week, Friday, I did the two championship games, uh, 5A, 6A. Shout out to Sky I, Ridge, huh? Yeah, shout out to Sky Ridge. 
at Lehigh um, and then jumped over to the arena and did the jazz game. So, um, you know, that's a fun part of my life when it's just, you know, just coming like that. And, um, and now I get a chance to, you know, football, high school football is done. I get to just chill out a little bit and um, just focus on the jazz. And then aside from that, um, for the last going on 10 years now, I've worked in the industry uh, of addiction recovery and uh, have a SUDC, Substance Use Disorder Counselor, um, and work at our Do Recovery Centers, which is an um, inpatient treatment down in Provo. And I get an opportunity to go in there and do group and work with clients and share my experience, strength, and hope. And um, nice to have the credentials along with it, right? Yep. Uh, and, and at the same time, really the, the qualifications that I bring are my personal experience, what I've been through. And I may have shared this with you before. When I went through treatment the first time and I was sitting with the clinical director in his office and talking about going through withdrawals and he was trying to help me. I'm like, Oh, so you've been through withdrawals before. He's like, no, but I've read about it. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Right. And he should so, at least said he saw the documentary. <laughs> I just read about it. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that personal um, experience is huge. As you know, in the work that, that we all do, it's, it's bringing that to it and allowing people to, bring down their barriers because they recognize that, that you know what you're talking about, that you've been there before. And that's powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to help someone find the light if they've never been in the dark. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, and, and I didn't tell you before we started on the podcast there, but I wanted to thank you for the help that you and Ardu did um, for one of my clients last year. That was in a very difficult place. And the reason why I bring that up is because, he told me specifically because I don't know if you guys, if any of you guys have a family member that's ever struggled with addiction or loved one. Sometimes people, while they're struggling with addiction, they're very protective of addiction. Yeah. And they don't want to let it go. And they don't really want a lot of logic and rational thought. And so it takes someone that's been there, done that, and also well experienced. And how you come at someone yeah. is a huge, it's, they could teach you in the books and in school, like what to do. But the bedside manner, to yeah. know how to chop it up with someone and know how to make someone feel comfortable, he said, he goes, you know, if I would have went anywhere else and would have worked with anyone else, I don't know if I could have broken down and been as vulnerable and allowed myself to get help. But because you're recognizable to him, because he's mm -hmm. a big jazz fan, but more so because you were able to share your own personal experiences that, in his opinion, was you're speaking. Yeah. And he was like, did that guy just read my journal? In my diary. Yeah. So when someone, you know, when you're in a relationship and someone finishes your sentences, you're like, oh my God, I think it's love. <laughs> well, the reason why you think it's love, because that's a connection. And you don't have to know someone a long time to have a strong connection with them. So he felt that strong connection yeah. with you. And what that did was it allowed him to trust you because he didn't trust himself. Yeah. I think that that's one of the, the most important things that, that we provide is a safe place. One of the, you know, maybe the only things we, we pr provide some direction, some guidance, some understanding. Um, and, you know, some of that comes from books. But what they're really looking for is a place where they can be safe and be honest. And I tell people all the time, I don't expect you to be honest. 
Like that, that would be an unreal, that would be my bad. If that's what I was thinking, you're going to come in here, you're going to tell me your whole life story and you're going to be totally honest. Especially when they're it. professional at lying. Because right? yeah. most addicts have been a pro at lying. Oh yeah. I mean, that, that's been our, our, our vocation for many years. Except right? you don't get paid very well to do it, right? <laughs> but we're just unbelievable liars. And so I tell people, I, I, I expect that as you feel safe, you'll give me the truth in increments. And, and that I can work with that. And so I think when, when I'm working with somebody, um, that's what I'm trying to do is just connect with them and let them know that, hey, I'm in this with you. I, I think one of the more valuable parts of, of doing therapy or counseling is being able to be relatable to the client. And in our world, you know, they tell you, oh, you, you really shouldn't, you know, talk so much about your own story. Yeah, and, they're fearful that yeah. there could be some transference and counter-transference that takes place. Right. And so, you know, for for me... At You're least Polynesian, in, though. Right. How are you not supposed to talk story? <laughs> yeah, right. And that's what OG therapy is, right? It's just, hey, let's sit down and chop it up. Let's talk. And... um and people are more willing to be honest with you when you share something about yourself. And for them, you know, yeah. some of them, the ones that, that know me from the broadcast world, they're like, oh, wow, I can't believe that he's talking about this or that he experienced this. And so it's, it's, uh, it's very powerful. Well, when you were going through therapy, you knew you had to receive therapy, but did you want to feel like you're being therapized? <laughs> no. You know, I, I wanted... I wanted the credibility of whoever was working with me. The truth is, when I went through treatment, man, I didn't want to get better. I, I mean, I wanted to get better, but like, teach me how to do this thing where I can live life and still have my dope. You wanted the cheat codes. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and so when people are, when I'm working with people, I get it. It's like you said, you know, the, the logical observation from somebody watching an addict destroy their lives is, Man, why don't they stop? I get why they don't stop. Because I love dope. I love it. And I don't want to give it up. Like, show me how I can live and still be able to use and not lose my family and not yeah. go to jail and not, you know, you know, all the other negative social impact that comes with, with addiction. I, I want you to elaborate on something for me for a little bit because i know as as a real og in your profession because you've been there and done that yeah and now you help people with that um I, I know you'll be able to elaborate on this in a way that if i'm being totally honest i get frustrated i was i was off social media for about two and a half years mm -hmm. and i've got back on social media for this basically yeah. to just promote what we're you know, we're doing here at the podcast at light the fight and og therapy but one of the frustrations i have and it's, I know why I'm frustrated. It's because I sit down with people and I help them, just like you, go through all the steps. Yeah. This isn't an Instagram post when mm -hmm. you're talking with people face-to-face -face right. and they're crying and their families are crying and everything's at stake, right? But what I get frustrated with is when I hear things just caval cavalierly thrown out there like, just create a safe space. But what is safe really? Yeah. Because... I fear, and I, I'm led to believe, that when people use that word, they're not really explaining and helping people understand what safe means. So would you elaborate on what safety really means? Because I'll tell you what most people say, tell me when they first yeah. hear it. They say, 
um, you know, uh, will, will you help me be safe? And I go, okay. Like I was talking to this one woman and she said she just got out of divorce with a very narcissistic man. Mm-hmm. And she, and you know, in her defense, I, I knew the guy and he's pretty accurate. <laughs> to be honest. Great. I mean, I liked him, but I, I wouldn't want to be married to him. Let's put it that right. way. Right. So um, she said, she goes, so now it was years later. She goes, now I'm dating. And she said, but you know, I'm not really attracted to this guy that I'm dating. She was explaining to me the guy. She started dating him because he was safe. Yeah. But he was physically attractive. He yeah. had all those, you know, he made good money and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But she said, for some reason, him being safe wasn't good enough yeah. for her. So explain a little bit about that safety. I think you know yeah. where, I, where I'm where I'm where I'm getting at when I talk about safety like this. Well, when I think when you you know when I hear you talking about this lady, you know, safe was was great, but it wasn't exciting. Um, and so when I'm talking about safe, I uh, I'm talking about people feeling like they can talk about the things that they have done without being judged. But that's not safe yeah. to talk about difficult things. Yeah. So no, go, go ahead, continue. I'm just agreeing with you because like yeah. you want to feel safe to talk about the craziest yeah. things. And that so, doesn't really sound like safe. You and know? again, for for me, the 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 way that I open the door for them is I tell them the crazy stuff that I did because I know they're relating to it. I can start telling a part of my story, and I can look at the group and you say, you know where this story goes, right? Because they they all know. Like I talk sometimes about an experience I had with my dad. My dad had come up to Utah to try to save his son. And I'm struggling with addiction. So I, I get off the pills at that time. And then we were driving around. And my dad was just, you know, trying to keep me occupied. And so we drive down that my grandfather, his father lived in Las Vegas, but they weren't in town. So he said, let's go over to Grandpa Ta'a's uh, place. And so we go there. And, you know, as I'm telling this story, and I, I'm telling the group, so I, I walk into the house, and my grandparents, you know, they're old and, and you know, have problems. And I say, you know where this story is going, right? And everybody knows that I just went and cleaned out their medicine cabinet, right? Because that's what we all do. But nobody wants to talk about it because I remember when I was early in my addiction, and I heard about guys stealing people's pills, I thought, that is terrible. Like, I would never do. I'm Polynesian. Who, I would never would do that to my that? aunts, to my like, older elders. How could elders. you possibly do something? And but as you get more entrenched in addiction, there I don't put anything past what I would be capable of doing in my disease. So when I share that with somebody, they're like, "Oh, okay, so I'm not the only person, and it's okay for me to talk about what I did," you know. And that's where we start to unravel you know, where the, the source of the problem is. Because for me, it's being able to address those things that I did that are unspeakable, right? I can't even, I can't, I, it, they're so hard for me to, to even grasp that it's safer for me in my own head to just act like I didn't do it, right? And just, it, whether it's denial or minimization or justification, I'm trying to figure out how to make what I did, which is horrific, like it didn't happen. You know, when you were saying that, it made me think of something that uh, you know this. So, um, Alema, he and I always joke around because his last name's Harrington, mine's Kozlowski. <laughs> not the most common <laughs> Polynesian names. And, you know, because we're obviously not full blood, we're what's called Afkasi, mixed blooded. Um, imagine in the island of Samoa. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's let's say we're back uh, 
a thousand years mm-hmm. ago. And we're we're in a uh, Savai, right? Yeah. In the village, do you think there'd be people staying up late at night to make sure everybody was safe? Do you yeah. think there's some guards, yeah. especially during a wartime situation? Yeah. They were armed with weapons, mm-hmm. and they were willing. If someone tried to sneak up on shore, yeah, they were willing to fight, protect, and potentially kill another person so that their family and village could sleep safely. Yeah. So what you're telling me, and I just thought about this when you're saying that what you're telling me is to create a safe space doesn't mean that some people can just sit back and play it safe. Mm-hmm. It requires yeah. some people to not play it safe. Yeah. It requires some serious assertiveness, strength, and being able to take risks. So when you're talking to those people and you're saying that, you just said 10 minutes ago, they don't teach you to do that in school. No. They, I know when I came out of, out of graduate school, everyone was scared to death to have any sort of human basic connection yeah. relationship with your clients because they could take advantage of you. You could take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. You could start hooking up with your clients. Next thing you know, you try to start dating them or you ask them for money because you help them. Like they, they scare you with yeah. all these ethics for good reason mm-hmm. because it's happened before. But what you're telling me is you couldn't have done what you've been doing yeah. for all these years with people if you played it safe. Yeah. And so, you know, to your point, that safe space is logically, intuitively, you're going someplace that that your your inner you know part that's protecting you is saying that's not safe don't go there right and what what we're saying is let's create a place where it feels safe to be able to do that and and that takes you know that requires um uh, again, for, for us to be proactive about it. And the proactive yeah. part for me is, let, let, me, let me tell you something about me. Yeah, because yeah. if, if someone, if, if your client dies of an overdose, they're not making a group therapy. Mm-hmm. So safety is always first. Yeah. But what you're saying is to keep it a safe environment, someone has to defend that. Yeah. And someone has to take a risk. And, you know, if we use the tribal analogy that I was talking about, you know, the people who are the warriors, the people who are standing up to protect the women, the children, the people who can't fight for themselves, those people cannot afford to play it safe so that there can be safety. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, you know, the example that you use, if they commit suicide, then they're not going to be a group. So if I don't create a space where they can talk about their struggles with their mental health and they're feeling suicidal or they're feeling like nobody cares, if they don't feel like they can express that, then they're going to commit suicide. Yeah. If you don't train, and again, we're using the analogy back and forth, if you don't train to be the best warrior possible mm-hmm. and you go out and get killed and you lose the fight, your women, your children that you are protecting are now not safe. Yeah. So by training and sharpening your tools, getting the cuts, getting you know, roughed up in mm-hmm. the dirt and going through those difficult times prepares you for war. So as you're talking about this, I, I'm just telling you, man, all the things that you went through, yeah, it sucked. I'm sure there's, I, I know for me in my past, I'm, you know, I was bummed out I couldn't go to my high school reunion lately because I have about 100 apologies I got to give out. I made some mistakes. So even though you're trying to continually you know, make your reputation better and make up for your former self, that person that went through all those things allows you to stand in front of people yeah. right now and help keep them safe. 
Absolutely. And, um, you know, again, for any, any of us, it's getting over the fear of this is not safe for me to, you know, do some self-disclosure here um, and step into that and say, you know what, I don't care. I don't care if it doesn't feel safe for me to share this with you. I'm going to share it. And that's that warrior mentality of I don't care if I'm putting myself in a vulnerable place to protect the village. And I might even take some, some hits for it or might even die. I'm willing to do that for you to feel safe. And there's, there's, a, um, there's a, a respect that is developed in, in an environment like that. So let's switch this over to a second men's mind. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, how many men do you know? I mean, I, I can count at least a thousand that would that are quicker to get angry willing to get in a fight in a pickup basketball mm-hmm. game willing to post their chest out flip someone off that cuts them off they can do that very easily but if you ask them to sit in front of their 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 friend and apologize for a mistake that they did to um, own up to some of their behavior that is something that they're yeah. not capable to do as easily or as quickly or they lack the tools yeah because, you know, that, that old saying that you hear in therapy all the time, anger is a secondary emotion, right? But we use it all the time to protect really for what, you know, the, the description that you give is probably embarrassment or hurt or disappointment. And I'm feeling those things. I don't know how to deal with those emotions or sit in front of somebody and apologize and, and be accountable. So the way that I respond is I lash out, you know, anger and and even in in our culture, anger was a, just such a huge part of it, right? The knee jerk reaction. Yeah. And so, what we're trying to overcome is generations of people, men that were not given the tools to be able to do that, or even if they were given the tools, it's like ah, it's not doing. I I don't I don't play like that, right? Because it, it would make me feel like I'm not tough. I'm not strong. Yeah. Do you find yourself like with your, just with your buddies, your mm-hmm. guy friends, when, you know, you, you see that they're holding a lot in and they're just like, they're all, maybe they're complaining about their <laughs> wife. Or they're, they're, you know, my boss is not there. Do you ever find yourself trying to like nudge them? Like, mm-hmm. Talk to your boss about it. Yeah. Go bring it up to your wife and not in the sense like you pissed me off. Do you ever find yourself trying to use your influence from all your experience working in therapy and addiction? Because the one thing that those people have in those addiction groups with just normal friends in your everyday life mm-hmm. is we can all be impulsive. Yeah. We can all, that nerdy jerk reaction, the anger. And then that anger, if not put in check, some people may need to get a coping mechanism for that mm-hmm. anger that's pretty immediate. Yeah. You yeah. know, boom, slamming. Yeah. So do you find yourself in your own personal life having friends come and ask you, like, how do you handle a situation? Or just giving them, like, helpful suggestions when you see that they're struggling? Sure. And, and a lot of my, you know, my close friends are people that are in recovery themselves. Right. And excuse me, that's therapeutic for me to have that kind of support because when I'm doing what you just described and I'm complaining about this and that they're, they, they're the ones that will say, what's really going on? Like, what are you really feeling? Like, what's the, what's the real story here? And looking beyond that surface part of it, which is the anger, the secondary emotion, they're like, you're not really mad about that, right? Like, what is it for real? 
you know? Oh, yeah. How many guys do you think walking around the streets right now, not an actual number, are, are lacking types of like someone they can be real, someone that that can that you allow that person to check you yeah. when you're when you're out of sorts, when you're not in a good place. Because I'm fearful that we are losing the OGs of this world yeah. that have that influence. Oh, I mean, I would say you know my you know the number I would just throw out is like probably eighty percent. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's what I was thinking it's, too. Yeah. And that's really high, yeah. but it's probably realistic. Like you know, a good I friend. To, I don't like, know how to quantify that or qualify that 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 number. But just from our experience, and especially, you know, I'll tell you, is I w- I've done high school football this last year. I'll give you an example, Tim Pugh. And I look at what these kids have been through in the last three years, right? With not going to school, then going to school, then being sent home for months at a time, and not being able to have um, your prom or homecoming or other events that allow us to socialize. And then, like for Tempu, then they have a year this year where they don't even have a home field. So they, they, they don't? They didn't, they couldn't, oh, wow. because they were redoing their field. Oh, okay. They don't even have a home field. And one of the beautiful things, Donnie Atawai is their new head coach and this year. And, uh, is that Marky's brother? Yeah, that's Marky's younger brother. Okay. And their other head coach, Andy Stokes, is their offense coordinator. And Kerry Whittingham, another former head coach at Tempu, is not, another one of the assistant coaches. They have these great coaches, and Josh Arnold, who is a guy that I played with at BYU as safety, is their defensive coordinator. And I, I, I share that because they had good leadership. And those guys told the kids, they said, we're not feeling sorry for ourselves. This is part of our story. And there was something empowering about that. And they leaned into it. Now, they lost to Lehigh in the championship game in triple overtime. But in reality, with what they were facing, they never should have been there. Yeah, and they 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 had that kind of a season because they were they had good leadership. That instead of letting the guys get salty or you know angry about the situation, they said let's let's get a little bit deeper. And and why why are you why are you really mad about this? And let's deal with that. And then let's come out and make this part of our story. Let's not be the underdog let's be you know the people that that people you know that the the masses didn't give a chance you know and i'm assuming because you know those guys i know those names even mm-hmm. though i don't know those people i'm assuming those men had to make a decision amongst themselves that they had to have that same relationship with each other that they weren't going to complain they're going to use that as an opportunity yeah. how can we make this and turn this into an advantage how could this uh, solidify a strength yeah. and a unity inside of our team and then how they could, from the top down, give that to the kids. Because mm-hmm. uh, what's the old saying from uh, Remember the Titans? Um, uh, something reflects leadership. Do you remember the movie Remember yeah. the Titans? Yeah. Um, it's I a, remember the, the Yeah, but Brandon Water makes you weak. It's that Brandon <laughs> looked at it, but it's something like, it says like uh, your, your performance reflects leadership. Yeah. Attitude reflects yeah. leadership. Thank you, Brandon. And so I'm imagining those men had to figure that out amongst themselves. Yeah. And you can't do that if you don't have close friends. You know, before the podcast came on, I, I shared with you some, some statistics that I, I saw you get excited about, but you weren't surprised. Mm-hmm. And that is you're more likely to live or you're likely to live eight to 15 years longer if you have two to three friends go to lunch with yeah. and talk about things outside of football. Those guys may be football coaches, but 
they're they're in charge of the lives of young men. Mm -hmm. They know that they're very influential and power, the ability to influence someone, that is real power. How you use that power is going to be dependent upon the leadership. So it sounds like those guys chose to use it in a way to benefit the kids. And you know, as, as you and I know, you can't you can't give something that you don't currently have or possess yourself. So for each one of those coaches and and you know all the other coaches that I did not mention that are part of that team, and this can be said about any of the teams that are out there in the state. And I have this great respect, love, and Skyridge admiration. Too. I right? once spoke to Skyridge yeah. uh, before one of their games, and yep. man, they had a strong team bond. Yeah, and so it's understanding, and they've got again great coaches, former players. Reno Mahe is yep, over there. Absolutely, shout uh, out to Jim Reno. Herman. Um, their their coach Tom Lehman is a fantastic coach that really I, after genuinely the, cares about his kids. I felt that just real quick. Yeah. I felt that after I spoke to the kids, he and I spoke a while yeah. afterwards. His heart was in that. That yeah. was not a coaching job. That was like I have a huge responsibility to raise these young men. Yeah, and if we do it right, we're going to win a lot of games. And you and I have been around the game long enough at different levels, right? That you you can you can sniff out. The, the guy that's not for real, right? That's not authentic and genuine. Um, and I was fortunate to play for uh, a Hall of Fame coach, Lavelle Edwards, who did very little football coaching, right? <laughs> Didn't but need to. He, he loved his kids and wanted, genuinely wanted the best for them. And you could feel that. It wasn't something well, that, you know, you heard in, in a talk from the coach at the end of practice. You felt it from him on a daily basis. Well, BYU in the 80s didn't have the same high-character kids that they have today. <laughs> I know, because my brother was one of those guys yes, on the sir. team. I'm like, how'd you get into BYU? Did they not do a background check? But no, I, that's all I ever heard about Lavelle, yeah. was that like he was the father figure. And you know, for me, that was Ron McBride. Yeah. Ron McBride, I'm like, I didn't learn, you know, have you ever seen that movie, you know, Talladega Nights with mm-hmm. Ricky Bobbins? I didn't learn anything about driving. Just, you know, ripped my shirt, you know, got all this stuff yeah. happened. But like Ron McBride, like he never taught me specifically about how to be a better football player. But much like Lavelle, there is something beyond that that mm-hmm. we all needed in those early 20s or alive. Yeah. When, when you don't know who you are, get all this attention for being an athlete, you need guidance. Yeah. You need a true OG, and Lavelle was definitely that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't you know, say that how much I love Ron McBride. And I'm fortunate to, to be able to I do a radio show with Coach Mack. During if the you guys are football fans, you've got to listen <laughs> to him and Coach McBride. All my buddies back in California, I told them you got to tune into 12-8 yeah. of the zone. Or I listen to 12-8. Yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah, 97.5. Yeah, yeah. uh, KSL 14. But those Fridays, you yeah. and Ron, I, I'm not joking. I fear the day when that's not going to happen. Yeah. Like, I don't want that day to not happen. And I'm not going to get emotional right now. Yeah. At the moment, it's a little too early in the podcast, but the day that Coach Ron McBride is not there to do that with you, like it brings me so much joy yeah. in my heart every every Friday, because he's one of those guys that um you don't know what he's gonna say, yeah, and you can't stop it even if you yeah. tried. But when he does talk, it's out of love yeah, and a lot of and experience. It's real, it's just it's genuine, it's real, and that's what Coach Mack is about. That's what Lavelle was uh, about, and you know, for me, I have the the honor of watching these high school teams with coaches that don't get paid very much at all to to come out and give their time and their leadership um, to these kids. And, uh, you know, I just marvel at that. 
and I'm so grateful for the work that they do because um, you and I had the blessing of playing that game. And there's so many life lessons that are taught in athletics, but for us in football, that if I didn't have that experience, um, I don't know where I would have learned some of those lessons, you know, in a practical way. Yeah, the the definition, and I, I always blew, I always, it always blows my mind whenever I know I've been using a word for a long time, come to find out the definition that I was using, it was totally wrong. <laughs> I'm like, damn, I look like an idiot. But one word in particular, I think, most people use wrong is humility and humble. Mm -hmm. I always thought it meant to be meek, to like turn the other cheek, to bend the knee, like to submit to someone. Humility means willing to be taught. Yeah. Humble means teachable. Yeah. And when you talk about a game like football, any difficult sport, obviously, you know, football is a, it's a collision sport, not just a contact yeah. sport. Any difficult sport you're going to be humbled, meaning even if you don't want to be teachable, there's going to be some times that you're going to learn some hard lessons. Yeah. And those men and women as well, in regards to what sport is, that are better at giving that message mm -hmm. makes it easier for the youth and the kids to learn. It's easier to be taught by someone yeah. that you A, respect, that does what they ask you to do, that they're not a hypocrite because, mm -hmm. again, we've all had good coaches. We've all had bad coaches. And you have a, a coach that's yelling at you and telling you to live to a certain standard. And then you find out on the news that that coach is not living those standards <laughs> themselves. And I'm not going to say any names, yeah. but I've had some of those experiences. However, what we're talking about right now is be able to lead young people yeah. is the ability to be a good teacher. Mm -hmm. And you've had some great teachers in your life, and now you get to be a teacher. So I want to ask you this question. And I know this is a kind of an open and loaded question at the same time. What is some of the biggest reward that you get from working in addiction? Because if you guys didn't know this, working in addiction pays different than if you own the organization sure. for addiction. And that's nothing against that organizations are bad. You know, they put all the money into risking it. But to do what Alema and I do, you don't have to wonder how much we make. Just go Google it. It's very simple <laughs> and it's not that much yeah. money. So, what is your biggest? So what do you which what do you get most out of the work you do? Those moments where you just feel the connection, like it's almost tangible, it's palpable, and you can feel the spirit in the room. I mean, because you can't that, see mental yeah. and emotional and addiction issues, you can't see it, but you can feel yeah, it. Is you what you're can saying? Feel it. And for me, that was when I discovered that, then I understood what. You know, the original founders of AA, you know, Dr. Bob and Bill W. Yeah. were talking about when they were describing this life that you would have and these feelings that you would have that were better than anything you've had in your life. Because to a certain point in my life, that's how I related to my response to drugs and alcohol was that feeling of euphoria. But when you have those moments, and you know because you've had them, right, and you have that connection, and, you know, at a certain point, the words stop, and it's just a feeling, and it's overwhelming. And that, those are the moments that, that keep bringing you back, even when you have to deal with the disappointment and the sadness that, that comes with, you know, failure and relapse and even um, overdose and death. 
And then to have those moments with a, a, you know, a client or in a group. And then when I get a text, you know, I get them fairly regularly. Somebody saying, hey, Alama, seven years today. Thank you. Like that is, that's why. And that for me is my high today, right? And, you know, the way that we chase that different than we chase dope is that, okay, I got to put some work in here and let me give my time and attention to somebody and share and be vulnerable. But those moments, like if I'm at a jazz game and somebody stops me, it's like, yeah. hey, I'm going to tell you, you know, I picked up five years. I'm with my family. Thank you. And, and you don't got to know that person to hug them. Yeah. Because we're already connected. Like, I'm, I already know that person without even knowing them and knowing their, you know, their story. I don't have to know the details of it. You know, we're, we're brothers in that, that fight and in that, you know, wrestling with the demons of alcoholism and addiction. Hurt and pain is hurt and pain. Yeah. doesn't matter if theirs was pills and someone else was alcohol. Yeah. Hurt, pain, hurt, and pain. Mm-hmm. He could be black, white, Asian. Mormon atheist, it don't matter. It can get anybody. And once you get there and you get out of it, it's like we made it, brother. Yeah. It's like we made it. And you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really thankful that that you shared that because as you were talking and as you started to tear up, I was asking myself the same question: What do I get? Yeah. You know. And one thing that when you're saying this, you didn't say this, but I, I felt it from you because maybe I'll use different words and mm. use it is. I would things like I would feel things like when a fan would say, "Thank you so much, David," because yeah. if it wasn't for you, our kid wouldn't be alive, yeah. or this wouldn't have happened, that wouldn't happen. And at that moment, I'm like, maybe I'm not such a piece of crap after all. Yeah, like maybe my mom and my dad abandoning me at birth, and me being raised as by my grandmother and her husband. Maybe I'm not a bastard, even though by definition I was a bastard. Maybe that what I had to go through so that I could help these people. And if that was the case, I'd do it again. Yeah. Like I, I'd run it back. Not that I want to go through it, but if I knew my sacrifice could be a benefit to these families and there's kids, well, then it wasn't w- without a purpose yeah. to it. Cause not everything has a reason, but if you take that hurt and pain and you can assign a specific purpose to it, I don't know. That, that's, that's just yeah. what I felt when you're talking. Uh, you know, what, as you're saying that I'm thinking, you know, I don't know people watching, they think, you know, that, oh, we're, we're in, you know, mental health and, and we have degrees. And, and so, you know, we know how to deal with all this stuff and, and we don't have that negative voice in our heads. Oh, just ask my wife. She'll tell you. <laughs> Bro, we, you know, but hear that. And so to have that countered by somebody saying, hey, thank you. And I appreciate you. Um, is a beautiful thing. It's not, it, it quiets at least to a degree that inner voice that is saying man you're such a piece of crap and and why can't you you know do this better or do this right um you know those those moments are are they're powerful and they sustain us you know that help me to keep going so do do you still ever struggle with those compliments when people tell you Thank you so much. Like specifically say, 
even if you don't know yeah. him, but if somebody work with like, thank you so much. If it wasn't because you this, and that, and this, and that, for me, for a long time, that was the hardest thing for me to do is accept a compliment. And when a mom called me out one time, it, it I realized I had to work on that because I didn't realize, but it was hurting her that I didn't accept her compliment. Yeah. And it was hard for me because people would tell me, thank you for all these things you did for my family. And my response would be like, oh, no, 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 it's no big deal. It's like, it was really you. You guys did the work and I would never make eye contact. And this mom, she looked at me, she goes, you know, that really hurts my feelings. You're not accepting my compliment. Yeah. I stopped and I was, I, I was shocked. Yeah. And I go, excuse me? She goes, you saved my kid's life. And for you to tell me that, oh, I did all the work. No, my daughter hated me yeah. until we started talking. So I sat up and I remember looking at her and saying, I really appreciate that. Yeah. That was so hard for me to accept yeah. that. Because I'm like, you don't know what yeah. I've done, woman. You know this version of me. You yeah. don't know 1994 cause. Yeah. You don't know that guy. Yeah. Is, is, is that is that gotten easier for you over time? It's is it still hard sometimes? Only because for for me, recognizing that they're you know, what they're what they're grateful for is me being a channel for God to be able to speak to their child, right? Um, yeah, I said the words and, and yeah, I, I did the, you know, the counseling and the work with their child or their, their loved one, spouse, whatever. But I recognize that that wasn't necessarily me doing that. That was God doing that. And so, um, and I, I told clients. So it's almost like you didn't want to take any credit. Well, at times, yeah. it's hard. Almost like if I take the credit, then somehow I'm taken away from God. Yeah. However, but I don't do that with the person. The person is thanking me. I I look at them sincerely, and I do appreciate, it, and I tell them thank you. I appreciate right. you sharing that with but, me. But but I what I was asking is, yeah. is it still hard at times? Have you had to work on yeah. that specifically? You know what I do when something like that happens, and um, somebody thanks me for yeah. something that that happened, you know, with their loved one, whatever. Um, I tell them, you know, you're welcome, and thank you for sharing that with me. And then silently in my heart, I say, right on, God. And I give the glory where the glory belongs. Um, but okay, good, because I thought you were saying you dismiss it, because no. I've had that issue with some people before, too, mm -hmm. where they tell me, it's like, hey, I'm not a, not to me, but yeah. they've told me, when people say, oh, no, that was God, not me, and that person's like, but I don't know God, like yeah. you're the one that helped me and, and they weren't of the same faith. Yeah. So they felt like I'm trying to give you a compliment. So, okay, that, that made yeah. sense. Okay. I appreciate and, that. And so I, I, so you, you know, don't want to, you don't want to take it away from yeah. their compliment. I have okay. accept and acknowledge the role that I played. Um, and cause we, we all play a role in each other's lives. Um, but it's those moments, those powerful moments, those healing moments, at least for, for, from, from my perspective, like, men don't heal men. Like, God does that. We facilitate that if, if I'm open to allowing God to... I mean, you know, there's... You mean if you went to rehab and actually got your crap together? Because <laughs> yeah. the only reason why you're there is because you had to do that work to get Absolutely. there. Okay. So, you know, having that, that own personal experience. But you know this. Um, in those moments, the most powerful work that we do are moments when I don't really have the answer. It's not choreographed. Right. And it's not I'm, scripted. But I'm open to whatever is going to flow through me at this moment. And so I just 
try to create that environment, you know, whether it's saying a prayer before I walk into group or saying a prayer while I'm doing group and asking God is like, help me to help your children. And I don't know how to do that. I mean, I yeah. have some, some tools, but, but these are your kids, yeah. you know, so help me help them. Yeah, you, you know at those moments, and I know at those moments, that how everything came together at that specific time for everybody to be ready, nobody can choreograph that. Yeah. I didn't make that happen. And what's cool about it is I, I like how you say that because, um, and obviously you and I both know, like, we can have our own spiritual beliefs, but in respecting, especially in 12 Step, yeah. we respect everyone. Yeah. Worship, however, or yeah. if you don't want to worship, but at those mo moments, it's undeniable that something outside of our control is taking the wheel. Yeah. Like something beyond us is making something happen. And it, it, it goes past religion or, or beliefs or philosophy. And at that moment, everybody knows that we're all blessed to be there. Yeah. Something's happening that's more powerful than us that brought all this stuff together. And yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> just at that moment, you're just like, this is real. Yeah. Undeniable. For people that, that struggle and and there there's plenty, and have been from you know the the foundation of of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, which is why there's a whole chapter to the agnostic yeah. in that book. Um, we struggle with the idea of you know a God and what does that mean? What does it look like? And the beauty of it is that that I'm not here to tell you what your God needs to look like. Yeah. But when we have moments like that that you're talking about where you feel it. It's like it's undeniable that there's a power greater than ourselves that is at work. And um, that opens the door for me to start to at least explore my spirituality. And for them, too, because, you know, what I mean, obviously, people don't mean to do this, but addiction is when you're in addiction is a self centered pursuit. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking about a lot of other things except getting your picks yeah. and high. As you mentioned earlier, once you replace that high with service and bettering other people's lives, helping someone else's life, that's love at its purest. Because yeah. in the old days when food wasn't readily available, when resources were very, you know, very limited, if you broke bread with someone mm -hmm. and you gave them food and water, that was helping them, but that was that was the language of love. Yeah. That's why every culture, Polynesians, mm -hmm. Latino, doesn't matter, if they invite you over for food, you better eat that food. Yeah. Don't be like, oh, I'm not hungry. That's a serious yeah. insult, especially in the yeah. Polynesian culture. You know, you might get Sasa, like when they say, take the food home, you say, yes, yeah, I will take it home. Right. Even if you take it home and throw it away, you better take it yeah. home <clears throat> because that is, they're sharing that thing with you. And same thing, you're sharing your life experiences with these people. Mm -hmm. They're sharing their fears and worries that they'll be judged with you. Mm -hmm. And together, that's the recipe for that healing, yeah. that recovery. Absolutely. And, and, you know, those old, my, I remember my dad talk, talking to me about Samoa. Um, and he, he was born there, but he was raised in Hawaii. Then he went back to Samoa on his mission. And he would, you know, talk about if you walk, you know, in front of uh, a village or, you know, somebody's folly at their house, if you don't invite them in, then, and, and give your food all the food that you have, even if your kids are not going to eat, right, then you're going to share your food with, with those people. Um, that's just the culture. That's what we do, right? Fa Samoa. Yeah, Fa Samoa. 
All is one. Yeah. Okay, so I got a couple, uh, <clears throat> got a little game that I want to okay. play with you to close this up. So this is a word association game. And what I'm going to do is uh, I have two different like phrases that I'm going, or one's a word, one, one's technically a label, a phrase. And I'm going to say one. And then once I say it, I want you to say the very first thing that comes to your mind and then elaborate okay. on that. Okay. <clears throat> Usually I start off with like a little softball pitch, let someone warm up yeah. and then I go to the hard one. I'm going to flip it around this time. Okay. okay? So you're a professional. So yeah. we're throwing the deep water and then we're going to save you and rescue okay. you, do something more lighthearted. So okay. we end this episode on, on something, uh, I'm assuming just easier and yeah. lighter. Okay. So the first word of this game is fentanyl. Death. The first word that comes to my mind is death. And I'm, you know, I, when I think about fentanyl, I think about, man, thank heaven that that wasn't around when I was using, because I would be dead. Um, it's such a dangerous drug because of its potency, and it's laced in everything now. And I was buying heroin on the street. And so, you know, you don't know what you're getting today. Not that you knew back then either, you know. Even more 10, so 15 now. years ago. But, but you don't know today what, what's in that. And so I, I think of a generation of death that fentanyl has caused. Death. Mm-hmm. Sadness. Um, pain. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, the next one. <clears throat> The Utah Jazz. Together. Um, it's been an amazing experience being with this team. And I'm just talking about Team 49. And tell everybody real quick what your right. actual position is. So I'm a broadcaster for the Utah Jazz. I've done the pre-half and post-game shows for, for the Jazz for probably going on 10 years, 10 years now. Right? I've worked for the Jazz for 15, but have had this position. So I've, it might not, But I've covered the Jazz even when I was working at a local... Um, at KSL, which was the NBC affiliate. So I've covered this team since the days of Stockton Malone and through Darren Williams and Carlos Boozer and through um, Rudy Gobert and Donovan uh, Mitchell. And now this team of um, guys that either somebody didn't really consider them to be, you know, good enough to not to be a superstar, um, but the beauty for us covering this team is the access that we've had, number one, and I give credit to the, the franchise for allowing that. And coaches have a, a, a big say Lots on that. that. And then COVID just cut off our, our, our contact with, with players almost completely. But we've gotten to know this group, and um, they all – just want to play for each other. And they all want to prove everybody wrong. Like, who would have thought that this team, this far into the season, almost a quarter of the way through, would be the number one team in the West? Are you kidding me? Well, is it just me or it feels like this is like high school program, like out of Hoosiers mm -hmm. or something like that, the movie yeah. Hoosiers. Like, this is like the B team that they just came together. And and I'll be honest, man, because for, for me, my fear is that, We'll lose that. That we'll lose that 
Because in the pros, tell people why that's hard to even I'm get in the you, first place. Like that for, chemistry. for me, I remember when Donovan arrived. And then I remember when Donovan went to Cleveland. And those were two different Donovans. And I'm not, you know, may, being critical of that. That's almost a product of your fame and fortune. Business. Yeah. And, and as you get where you have more to lose, then you're more protective of that. And so right now what the Jazz have is a beautiful um, group of connected players. And uh, I just hope that we can hang on to it for as long as possible. Because the chances are that a guy like Lowry Markkinen is, you know, he might be also an all-star this yeah, year. Very well. Um, a guy like Malik Beasley, somebody will want him as a starter for, for them. Um, you know, I, I hope that, and I love the personality of Jordan Clarkson because it's just infectious. It just, it, yeah. you know, it's, it, everybody wants to be around that, right? And so you hope that you can hang on to kind of the, the personality. And the coach will have a lot to say about that. And so give credit to a first-time head coach at the age of, I think, 34. Yeah, really. Young. That is, I, I mean, when, the, when they announced I'm like, brah. 34, like you got players. Mike Conley's 35. I know, exactly. <laughs> right. And so. Like, That's like the Rams coach when they hired him. Right. So, um, but given credit, Will Hardy has done a fantastic Absolutely. job. And and Danny Ainge and Justin Zanuck to, to just put this team together. But it's been fun. So because this podcast is all about relationships, and, and the first thing that came to your mind that you said was togetherness. <clears throat> I want your perspective because you're in the middle mm -hmm. of not only you're not like in the organization, you're like actually like like overseeing every yeah. like the fans, you're between the fans, the players, and everybody. What have you seen that it's done to the connect the connectedness of the city, yeah. of the state of Utah? I want you to weigh in on that a little bit because from the outside perspective, I love it when sports can bring people together so we have some sort of common yeah. bond. It goes past race, mm -hmm. religion gender, any of those things, because you see people that wouldn't normally yeah. hang out with each other, they're all jazz fans. Yeah. And I like to see that camaraderie. What have you, have you seen that as well? Yeah. And that's what, you know, in, in, to a large degree, that's what athletics can do for a community at its best and, yeah, and have, and for what a, a championship caliber team can do for a community, but even a, a you know, a, a team that's not a championship caliber, if they're a team that you can look at and be proud of, like yeah man that my utah jazz then that that brings people together that as you said might not normally mix because you know for for me using a, a addiction as the thing that pulls people together or a team but for me addiction regardless of where that person came from if i run into somebody and i see them with let's say a renaissance ranch hat on or an ardu t-shirt on i'm like that's my brother, right? And I'm connected with that person. Same thing if the you, jazz jersey. yeah, somewhere and you see that, you know, that highlighter yellow jersey, it's like, oh, my guy, that's my guy right there, Utah Jazz, right? And, and, and those communities, they connect. People, strangers start talking line mm -hmm. at Walmart or whatever. Because you can relate to that. So you can relate to each other on that thing. And that's what the jazz are. So being a broadcaster for the jazz is that, especially this year and when the organization's at its best, but especially this year, has that been one of the biggest like benefits to being in that position for you to see that? Yeah. 
to to watch and observe and learn lessons and and you learn lessons regardless of what's going on with the team right sometimes they're good sometimes they're bad um and to have that perspective where we are where we're watching um and trying to figure things out and understand why they're doing what they're doing or what they're doing um and it's just for for me what a what a great life i have that i get to do that for a job or and then my other job is to to go and talk about addiction recovery like i'm blessed well i can tell you lemma and i'm i'm blessed to have you as a friend and you truly are blessed because your career path obviously came from passions yeah right um passions of like hey i want to help other people not go through what i've gone through and passions just being an athlete and sports sportsman yourself you saw you know the camaraderie of team and how it can bring communities because obviously byu is a large fan base a worldwide fan base mm-hmm. and being part of that family and alumni from there and now being a part of the the jazz organization and a tenure to the jazz organization it's like you got to be a part of big families yeah. entertainment and and that was but also a family that comes from hurt and pain as well yeah, yeah. I, I you know I, I have these two dream jobs and their the, the connection between the two is that those two experiences whether it's athletics or addiction recovery are things that bring people together and which you know when you think about addiction it tears people apart but recovery um just by virtue of the word means to bring it back together that's a perfect way to end this segment i'm gonna shut up after that i just want to remind everybody uh thank you for being here for supporting us you know how to follow us on instagram youtube we're we're now on the youtube as some of the boomers call it the youtube (laughs) or the instagram thank you for following us here and light the fight and thank you for always helping us to light the fight me and my boy are gonna go grab some pokey or some sushi we'll figure out which one we're gonna get (laughs) but thank you for always helping us to light the fight